Hey y'all, it's your host Brandon here with a little heads up. Do the Work is a show that deals with heavy and at times traumatic moments around race and racism. So, if you don't have the emotional space to hear these discussions right now, that's okay. You can always come back to this episode whenever you are ready. We hope that you take care of you. Oh, and one more thing. Sometimes we use adult language in this podcast, so if you got kids nearby, you might want to grab your headphones. All right, now let's get started. The talk. It's something almost every black and brown child gets, especially black boys. If you don't know, The Talk is a conversation parents have with their black and brown kids, and specifically their sons, about how they should behave during encounters with the police so they can survive those encounters with the police. It is a painful, personal conversation about the ways systemic racism dominates American law enforcement and endangers black bodies. I remember the first time I was given the talk. I was eight years old with my mother. I didn't understand how I could be seen as a threat to white people. I got good grades, I was polite, and I liked to ride bikes and watch cartoons. What was threatening about that? The answer is nothing. My black body was the threat, and my mother knew that, and it was her duty to arm me with that devastating information. The talk is sadly a necessary fact of life for parents of black and brown children. But it's also a vital discussion for black and brown folks to have with our romantic partners when we're in an interracial relationship. Every parent gives their black son the talk. You gotta have the the same talk you have with your son, you're gonna have to have with your girlfriend or your wife. You're listening to Do The Work, a show that untangles the uncomfortable, offensive, and sometimes downright racist moments that happen in our personal relationships. I'm your host, Brandon Kyle Goodman. On today's show, we examine America's racist police policies through the eyes of one couple, Walter and Pamela, and how it has shaped their relationship and their entire lives. Stay with us. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Welcome back, y'all. I want to start out today by introducing you to our couple. Walter and Pam are a beautiful interracial couple who live in Ohio. 
Walter is black and in his late 40s, and Pam is white and in her late 30s. They've been together for eight years, married for six, and they have a little girl named Jasmine, or Jazz, as they call her. It felt like we we just brought her home like the other day, and now she's already four years old. Walter works on the assembly line at a car manufacturing plant, and Pam is a full-time nanny. She loves her job and the little ones she cares for. I call them my kids, you know? Like, uh, they are an extension of my family, for sure. (laughs) In many ways, Walter and Pam live an idyllic Midwestern life. I'm a, I'm a family guy most of the time. It's just strictly family. Um, we do a lot of hiking and going to the parks, especially with jazz. Even though they're like a lot of couples in Ohio, balancing work with raising a kid and having family get-togethers, their relationship started off in a very uh, untraditional way, shall we say. We did not know each other. He retweeted something that I tweeted. I, I couldn't even tell you what the tweet was now. I think it was something political, maybe. Um, and then he DM'd me, like, oh, I liked your tweet or something like that. After just one post, I started talking to her. And we talked, like, all night the first night. Yeah, that's right. They talked online all night and the next day and the day after that. Days turned into weeks, and DMs turned into texts, and then phone calls. I mean, their connection was instant and strong. But it would be months before they would meet each other in person. You see, at the time, Walter was living in his hometown of the Bronx in New York City, while Pam was about 600 miles away living in a rural part of Ohio. But they knew this feeling between them was real. So they didn't let geography stop them. Six months after Walter's retweet, he hopped on a bus and came to Ohio. <laughs> I decided I need to see you for the first time. So I, I, I took the, uh, the, the bus in, uh, what, what was Chinatown, all the way to Ohio. Walter rode the bus all night to meet Pam in Columbus, Ohio. I remember, like, leaving at 6 o'clock and getting there the next morning. It was a long, long, long ride. They spent the weekend together in Columbus, and they discovered the chemistry they felt was real. Walter returned home to New York, and they kept things going with phone calls and texts. And six months later, after the initial meeting, I went to New York to visit him, and he proposed. And then we were we were married in, like, the following year, like, about six months after that. For me, she's like the, uh, the, the total package. She's smart. She's beautiful, energetic, and she keeps me on my toes. She's like, I, I just love her from that, for that. It's just the best thing I ever had, so I had to marry her. Oh, honey, that is a whirlwind romance. Feels like something out of a Sleepless in Seattle. (laughs) Now, Walter would eventually move to Ohio to be with Pam and start their family. But while they were engaged, they were still long distance. Walter would come visit Pam in Ohio, and it was during this time that their relationship faced its first big test around race. So uh, we was at a restaurant, and we was ready to leave, and we was, like, getting in the car. We were out to dinner, and when we went to leave, there was a couple fighting in the parking lot. It was a white couple. 
And you could tell that they were both um, probably drunk. So they were like really arguing and the man kind of a couple times like went to grab the woman and she was like yelling a lot. Pam was disturbed by what she saw. And I remember saying to him, like, do something. Because <laughs> I wanted him to get involved and, like, break them up, right? And he kind of just gave me this look, like, what are you doing? Walter didn't want to get involved. But Pam would not let it go. She walked over to the couple, and Walter reluctantly followed. They helped the woman get back inside the restaurant. But Walter and Pam left before the police arrived. Once they were in their car, Pam confronted Walter. I lay into Walter and I'm like, why didn't you want to get involved? What were you doing? Like, why wouldn't you want to help this woman out? You know, and I'm kind of yelling at him. And I say to him, like, my dad would have immediately got involved because that was the kind of dad my that's still to this day the kind of guy my dad is. Like, if if he saw something happening, he would like try and jump in and negotiate and make sure everyone's okay. Listen, Walter is a good guy, but of course he isn't like Pam's dad in one very critical way. Walter is not white. And when it comes to situations like the one at the restaurant, that matters. In Ohio, I'm in a dominant white area. So as a black man dealing with a a white couple, I can't just inject myself into a, a, a situation like that because the dad is a white guy. He can go, he can actually get involved and it wouldn't be no type of big situation. But when a black person gets involved in a situation like that, uh, people tend to be more aggressive towards the, the black person. I'm like, I'm not dealing with white people's problems. And Walter's right. As a large six foot five black man, he could face real harm if he inserted himself into an altercation between two white folks. If the cops had shown up outside this restaurant in Ohio and seen a white woman yelling and Walter standing between her and her white boyfriend, Walter may have been viewed as the aggressor. It could have gotten really bad for Walter, maybe even deadly. And so how did Pam respond that night in the car after Walter explained this to her? I remember being like completely speechless, which is rare for me. (laughs) So, and you know, it, it made me like take a step back and realize I would have never thought of it that way. Um, I didn't even see them as white people. You know what I mean? It was just this couple fighting where he sees it as, these white people are fighting and if I get involved um, and the cops show up and now I've been fighting with this white man, I the cops are going to show up and it's going to look like I'm guilty and I'm going to have to possibly be involved in something that I don't want to be involved in. You know, I don't want to be perceived as a threat. And, you know, I didn't even think of it that way, like that I could potentially be putting him in a harmful situation by getting involved. It's not unreasonable for Walter to think this way. There's a long history of Black folks being perceived as threats by police in situations where we aren't being threatening or committing a crime. 
like when 12-year-old Tamir Rice was seen playing with a toy gun at a playground in Cleveland, Ohio. And within two seconds of cops arriving on the scene, they shot him dead. And in addition to these stories that appear in the news far too often, Walter has his own personal experiences that shape how he views law enforcement. You see, Walter grew up in the Bronx during the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Yeah, it was, it was just so bad. Cops were really bad, especially in my area. It was like at least four out of five times a day you get thrown on a wall, search, or you, some, some people getting beat up, some people getting killed. It was just a, way more harassment and, than the usual in any other area. The war on drugs was raging. Black and brown men were being stopped by police for just walking down the street. And it's something Walter experienced firsthand. In that area, it was called like bullpen therapy, where they would just come, make everybody get on the wall, and just put you, put you in the paddy wagon and take you to the precinct. So basically, you were spending days in the precinct and they didn't even have a charge on you or nothing. They just wanted to know if you was like some type of criminal or had a, a record. Can you imagine being rounded up for no reason and thrown into a holding pen and then never being charged? Well, that's what Walter and a lot of young black and brown men like him experienced growing up. And looking back on it now, how does Walter feel? He feels proud. Proud he was able to escape the system alive. So basically, I'm a 40 eight-year-old man that never been, black man that's never been arrested and lived in New York since the 70s. So that is this accomplishment alone, just, you know, not being arrested or getting killed. Even though Walter moved to Ohio to start a new life with Pam, he still has to deal with the racial profiling all the time and the threat of police violence. So early on in their relationship, around the time the restaurant incident happened, Walter had to have the talk with Pam. Coming up, we hear from Dr. Jason Williams, a professor of justice studies at Montclair State University, about the history of the talk, why it's necessary, and how the policing of Black men has changed over time. So the Jim Crow laws came as a result of white supremacists seeing the criminal code, the criminal law, the judicial system as a quintessential tool of controlling Black bodies. And we'll bring Walter and Pam together to explore the many ways race and policing has continued to impact their relationship. I got pulled over last week and they, they surrounded me, three different cop cars, Stay with us. Welcome back, y'all. So we're going to bring Walter and Pam together again real soon. But first, I want to talk about what their story really means. It represents way more than just an 
uncomfortable moment or a misunderstanding between a couple. In fact, Walter and Pam's story of that couple arguing outside the restaurant is eerily similar to that of another Black man, a man named Jonathan Price. In early October, Jonathan was at a gas station in Wolf City, Texas, about an hour outside Dallas. He witnessed a man and a woman fighting and stepped in to break it up. An officer arrived on the scene and used his taser on Jonathan and then shot him dead with his handgun. Jonathan has been remembered as a mentor, a hometown hero, a star athlete, and a motivational speaker. He was only 31 years old. It is deeply upsetting to think that Walter could have easily ended up like Jonathan Price on that evening outside the restaurant in Ohio. But the reason why it is so easy to imagine is because of the ways the U.S. criminal justice system operates. It's something Dr. Jason Williams thinks about a lot. He's a professor of justice studies at Montclair State University, and he's a Black man. After the deaths of Michael Brown and Freddie Gray, Dr. Williams conducted critical on-the-ground ethnographic research in Ferguson, Missouri, and Baltimore, Maryland. My producers called Dr. Williams up just days after Jonathan Price was killed to talk about Walter and Pam's story and the ways Black folks, and Black men in particular, are policed in America. He began by pointing out that our present-day criminal justice system has direct ties to the end of the Civil War. In the immediate aftermath of slavery, certainly there were the... um, Black codes, you had Pig's Law was one of the most notorious um, codes that were actually used to sort of re-enslave Black men in particular. And what was Pig's Law? So it was a law that they used to basically accuse Black men of having stole, um, you know, livestock. You know, so you stole this pig or you stole this chicken or what have you. Um, And frankly, you know, during those times and probably quite similarly today, Black men really couldn't defend themselves in the uh, in the American judicial system. And so it made it quite easy for them to be simply accused, brought into the system and indicted and convicted, and thrown right on back onto those plantations. Now, the only difference, of course, is that under the context of this new convict leasing system, this new system of brutality and, frankly, virtual slavery, they could be worked to their literal death, and many of them were. During the Reconstruction era after the Civil War, even though they were free under U.S. law, Black folks continued to be targeted, but they fought back. They started running for office and won seats in state legislatures to ensure that their new freedoms would be protected. But then... There was a swift reaction on the the part of white supremacists to respond to this. And and during this time, you had the rise, the swift rise of the KKK, other white hate terrorist groups, whom many of whom we still have today, um, who sought to regain government power um, such that they can overturn, right, these sort of radical changes, as they've seen it anyway, that were happening at the time. And so this is where we began to see the criminal code, the criminal justice system, become the sort of last white hope of white supremacist rule. America's white power structure wanted to control Black bodies as Black folks sought to empower themselves economically and politically. And law enforcement played a key part in this control, often through violent means. 
police departments back then were very, very complicit and very much so attached to the ideology, the ideology of anti-black violence, you know, um, and state-sanctioned violence too, uh, because many of them participated in these um, lynching exercises and ceremonies, frankly, against black bodies. Now, a lot of folks wrongly believe that after the Civil Rights Act was passed in the 60s, Black America's problems were just uh, solved. Uh-uh, honey, we know that's not true. Post-Civil War Jim Crow laws may have been legally curtailed by the Civil Rights Act, but Jim Crow ideologies still dominated America. In the late 1960s, President Richard Nixon adopted a law and order message that sought to criminalize black folks. Nixon suggested that the urban riots of the late 60s were on their way to the suburbs, and to stop that, he had to save the suburbs. He said that those people in the inner cities needed to face a crackdown, that they needed, that the country needed law and order. Now, where have I heard that recently? Anyway, after Nixon's law and order message, President Ronald Reagan's war on drugs ramped things up even further. And we are still feeling the effects today. With the war on drugs, there were other policies eponymous to it. You know, for instance, when you look at Breonna Taylor and how she was murdered by the state uh, through a drug raid, you know, so these types of procedures and policies came about as a result of the war on drugs. So her death is actually a product, a byproduct of the racist war on drugs. So that's one such way in which Jim Crow materialized, but then also through this, this sheer strategy of mass incarceration. So for instance, the downplaying of rehabilitation, the downplaying of the fact that many of these communities that are largely affected by crime and criminality are also deprived of, you know, economics, economic upward mobility, uh, deprived of social political inclusion. So the downplaying of larger institutional and structural barriers, you know, to the, at the behest of simply saying that nothing works, nothing works, and the only solution here is to just simply mass incarcerate. I would argue that white supremacy of yesterday is um, is still here and that it has found its sort of last great white hope through the judicial system. And while there have been efforts over the last decade to improve law enforcement through things like community policing and the use of body cameras, Dr. Williams says police departments are now getting creative to maintain control. So policing in the post sort of 9-11 age too, you know, has become more intelligence led. So, you know, they will always come up with new ways of reintroducing the same old program, you know, um, back into play. So, um, and, you know, as, an, as a criminologist and academic, I, I sort of have front row seats to this. So I know in New York City in particular with the vertical police and then some of the housing projects, um, out West as well with some of the gang database and such. These are the sort of new age ways in which they repackage and, and sort of resell and therefore then re-emerge these old programs, these old regimes of surveillance. And again, if you do so through the rhetorics of law and order slash fear, then the public will readily accept it, including some of the communities, sadly, that these Black men will, will, will come from, you know, especially when you underscore the fear factor here. 
Um, so when you look at intelligence-led policing, for instance, they will rely on databases to dictate how they will police and over-police certain sections of the town. And again, through the fear factor, you legitimate your, 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 um, your procedures to the public. And then the public readily accepts it, rubber stamps it. And then, you know, here now you have the mass incarceration of scores of black males from this housing project, from this section of Queens, this section of Bronx, so forth and so on. Um, even though, again, drugs are being sold wholesale in some of the more prominent white communities or even less prominent white communities. The problem here is that we construct blackness and particularly black males as the quintessential drug dealer, right? And we construct geographies of blackness as fields of criminality without understanding that crime is, is constructed and concocted everywhere, you know, crime. And, and frankly, if you're pulling, pulling all your resources in one area, then it's gonna be a self-fulfilling prophecy, meaning that you're gonna find exactly what it is you're looking for. And this is part of the historical trope of branding black people as criminals, you know, and, and this is connected to that of the runaway slave, because, you know, to run away, to become a fugitive of slavery is to be that of a criminal. And so unfortunately, when you think about how the greater white American imaginary has been unable to disjoint itself from that frankly racist practice and process and way of thinking, um, you know, unfortunately we see that reemerging today again in the judicial system. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Before we let Dr. Williams go, we asked him to reflect on Walter's story in particular about being afraid to get involved with the white couple fighting because he could be seen as the aggressor. In the case of Walter, you know, um, you know, the reason why he couldn't react is because again, as a black male, you always have to operate, you always have to matriculate in this society with the expectation of potentially being labeled. And in particular, when you think about his situation, I'm thinking about Jonathan Price. You know, the, the, the black man in uh, Wolf City, Texas, who was just killed by the police, breaking up an altercation, a domestic violence altercation. It goes back to how even the police will construct the actors at the scene. But every single actor in the justice system brings with them to work, whether they are officers um, or whether they are officers of the court, they bring with them to work the same biases and prejudices that they have at home. And so to that end, yes, um, officers will bring with them onto the job you know, notions of prejudice, notions of, well, Black people are the criminals, they are the assailants, they are the uh, aggressors, if you will. And so Walter was absolutely correct, unfortunately, in choosing not to interact there because he could have ended up being a Jonathan Price. And it's very unfortunate to have to say that, but this here is a prime example of what could have happened. We're thankful that it didn't happen to Walter. Very, very thankful. And I also want to take a second to honor Jonathan Price and his loved ones. And I know that myself, my producers, and you, our listeners, are committed to doing the work and making sure that another Jonathan Price, Michael Brown, Freddie Gray, George Floyd, doesn't happen Dr. Jason Williams is a professor of justice studies at Montclair State University. He has conducted critical, on-the-ground ethnographic research in Ferguson, Missouri, and Baltimore, Maryland, following the deaths of Michael Brown and Freddie Gray. 
Coming up, we bring Walter and Pam together for a different kind of talk about what Pam has learned since that incident at the restaurant and about the challenges that Walter faces as a Black man in America. I struggle to survive and make sure that I'll be in the right position, say the right things, make the right moves just to survive every day. That's next. Stay with us. Hey, y'all, before we jump back into our episode, I want to invite you to be part of our show. If you want to be a guest on this podcast, email us your story at do the work at three uncanny com with the numbers spelled out. So that's do the work at three uncanny com and tell us your story. Or you can call us with your story. Drop me a line at 973-922-3345. That's 973-922-3345. And now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back, y'all. Okay, so we are about to bring Walter and Pam together for a talk about the ways policing in America has shaped their relationship. But first, I want to give you a refresher on where we left off in their story. Walter and Pam have been married for six years and together for eight. They live in Dayton, Ohio, with their adorable little girl named Jasmine, or Jazz, as they call her. Early in their relationship, Walter and Pam saw a white couple fighting outside of a restaurant in Ohio. Pam wanted Walter to step in, but he didn't want to get involved. That moment started a conversation between them about the dangers Black men face when interacting with police. Walter explained to Pam that he could face deadly harm if the police showed up and saw him as the aggressor and not the one breaking up the fight. It was at that time that Pam began to understand what Walter faces as a Black man when he interacts with the cops and how dangerous those interactions can be. So my producers called up Walter and Pam to have a conversation about these moments when policing and race have collided with their relationship. And Pam brought up an incident that had really opened her eyes. Probably the first time we were pulled over, I was actually pulled over. I was the one driving, Um, but I had done nothing wrong. They pulled me over. They said that there was a light out on my license plate um but the majority of the stop was about walter they did not ask for my id they asked for his he was just a passenger at the time um they continued to ask me if i was okay um like i was being held against my will or something it was the weirdest interaction i've ever had with police um it was a total of three police officers that approached the car from all sides of the car um yeah like three different cop cars um, they, they asked him to get out of the car. They asked him if he had any warrants. I mean, mind you, he's just a passenger. He's not driving. So if anybody sh- like should be handing an ID over it or a license over, it should have been me. I'm the one driving. 
Um, of course, he said, no, I don't. They ran him for warrants. He didn't have anything. They let us go on our way. We got home. We checked the license plate. There was no light out. Everything was in working order. I think that was the first time I realized, oh, crap, this really does happen. You know? It does sadly happen. And that interaction could have ended badly for Walter, especially because when they were in the car with the officers surrounding them, I was like getting agitated. And I remember Walter put his hand on my thigh and was like, stop. And so I stopped and then we got home and I'm like, why didn't you let me yell at them? And, and he's like, because you're then opening the door to, you know, potential violence against us or me. Um, Because, you know, I'm coming from a place of privilege where I'm outraged and I want to yell at these police officers for doing this. And he's coming from a place of let's just make it out of this interaction alive, you know. And so we got home and had that talk. Yeah, we, you can't argue with, with the cops. You can't make no subtle moves because at the end of the day, if she gets angry and get, they're still going to come to me and make this situation all about me. And for Walter, like a lot of Black folks in America, these terrifying moments keep happening. Walter works about an hour away from Dayton in a rural part of Ohio. His job has him on the night shift, and he doesn't get out of work until 3 in the morning. I can tell y'all, as a Black person, I would not want to be driving late, alone, in a rural part of anywhere at 3 a.m. And that's because something like this could happen. I got pulled over last week. I pulled over in the gas station to get gas. They they surrounded me, three different cop cars, while I was getting out to really get ready to pump my gas. There was like, can I see your ID? I was like, what is, what's even going on? They said somebody called them and said a, a, a black car was speeding. Which also the gas station is very close to work. He didn't even have time to get up his speed. Like it wasn't, it was someone called them and said a black man's driving basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's, it's unbelievable. What's the scary part is that I have my head down getting out the car and like, it's like a movie. You look up and you see whole, all these cops, like nobody has their guns drawn or nothing, but it was scary because I've just got on my car and looked up in it. It's like they all coming on top of me and like, I'm like, whoa, what's going on here in my head? He called me after he left the gas station because he was, of course, worked up. Um, And honestly, in the moment, I'm trying to remain calm because I just want him to get home safely, you know. And I think after he was home, I cried, you know, (laughs) because it's emotional to have to like, it's it's a burden that I think people don't realize that so many people of color have to carry every day. It is a burden that people of color must carry every day. It's painful. It's painful to live through. It's painful to talk about. I mean, it's painful for me to even record this episode to hear Walter and Pam's story. But it's necessary. Talking about these things is necessary. And that is why Walter had his own talk with Pam. 
we asked him to recall what he said to her about the ways they both need to act if they're in an encounter with the police. Number one thing, do not argue with the police. Never, just like, if they say, uh, let me see your ID or stand over here or, you know, move over here. You know, let let me just do what I need to do and get out of that situation and let's go on about our day and get out of there as fast as I as as fast as I can. No subtle moves, no arguing. In a way, she just gotta be like black just like me. Walter says all black and brown men in interracial relationships should be having this talk with their partners. And I agree with his advice. You just want to sit down and talk with your partner, make sure you're always on the same page and make sure that you can get out of any situation safely. And Pam has some of her own advice for those who are in an interracial relationship, especially white folks. You need to be really listening to your partner um, because they're going to be coming from a completely different perspective. And I think oftentimes... Um, white people have a tendency to um, disregard or blow off other people's experiences. Not everybody, but I think it's important to not only listen, but have empathy, not try to justify um, the experiences that they've had, not try to explain. I think oftentimes white people tend to say, oh, well, uh, this happened because you did X, Y, Z. And it's not really your place as a partner to try and um, explain away the experiences that they've had. Empathy is key here because it is agonizing to regularly see police violence against Black bodies. Seeing this repeated brutality against people who look like him and his family members, well, it's something that weighs heavily on Walter. He has a son from a previous relationship, and when he thinks of how the world might one day treat his children, it's hard for Walter to find optimism. I'm just depressed. It just—it gets me real sad. It hurts in the gut to think that we're still going through this situation in 2020. It's just, you know, it's sad. I just see, you know, no... No future for my kids, at least especially for my son. If, if we can deal with the situation now, it's, it's like we're never going to deal with it. It just keeps on hurting my heart. And it's so sad to say this, but multiple times Walter has said to me, I'm so glad that Jazz is a girl. And um, because although she will be seen as biracial, as a girl, she... It does not. It won't be seen as much a, as a threat as he has been growing up, um, or how, as his son has been growing up, um, and that offers her a little bit of protection. Um, and it that when we have those conversations, it depresses the hell out of me. You know that we're even having to say that. Like I'm glad. Like if we break that sentence down, it's I'm glad she's a girl because she's less likely to be killed from someone, you know? Like, it's insane that we're having these conversations. It's a definite stress on our daily lives. And honestly, I don't sleep well until he's home because I dread getting a phone call one day. 
I struggle to survive and make sure that I'll be in the right position, say the right things, make the right moves just to survive every day. I want to thank Walter and Pam for joining us and for sharing their story. Their family blogs about love, life, and race at thechandlercrew.com. Before I let you go, I want to bring in our in-house educator, Debbie Irving, the author of Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race. I asked Debbie why it's so difficult for white folks to understand the ways that people of color are threatened by the police. Her answer? It's simple. It's all about privilege. You know the talk I got about police growing up? Tell me. Debbie. Feel free. Go downtown. Go to the fair that we have. Have a great time. And if you get lost or you need help, just look for a policeman. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that was not my talk. (laughs) Yeah. And at the macro level, the police exist to protect white people and white property um, from everybody else. Yes. In my white household, the attitude was, these people work for us. We pay taxes. We pay their income. And and so I had this incredible sense of not only um, safety, yes. but like I was the boss of them. Yeah. <laughs> I know. What a concept. What a concept. <laughs> and today, you know, we're talking about Walter and Pamela and the talk that parents give to their black and brown children, and especially their sons. So before you started on your waking up journey, had you had you ever heard of the talk? No, never. Do you know what it is now? I do. <laughs> I do now. I know it in lots of lots of iterations. How did you learn about it? Like, how? when did you, like, first become aware of the talk? I think it was a, uh, you know, one of my really good friends who actually worked with me um, as my administrator was a white woman and who married a black man with two black boys who were always, con- and living in a very white area, considered uh, really cute their whole life until they started to grow up. And suddenly they were seen as a threat in the mm. in the town. And, and talking to her... Uh, hearing her having to have the talk was hard. And um, the emotional impact on me was really profound, having to hear a young child try to take in the information. Yeah. And and, and, the, and knowing that I never had to do that. Yeah. It really put into relief what my little white girls uh, never had to grapple with at such a young age. Mm. I was having a conversation with another friend of mine who is uh, also a black, And we were saying, you know, regardless of what happens on a systemic level, just on a personal level, on just an experiential level, we can't deny that our interactions with the police, and we've had multiple, many between the two of us, have never been good, (laughs) have never been safe, have never been positive. And so as a child, there's such a mental aerobics because you are being taught in school that these are the people that protect you and that, you know, have your back. And if you get lost, ask them for anything. And yet the experience that we're having as Black people, as Black children, is the complete opposite. It's immediately 
What are you doing? Why are you here? You're immediately treated as a suspect, which is hard at 33, Mm. but at 12, at 10, at 7, to be treated like a suspect, which we see time and time again. Uh, and and it's it's ended deadly. Uh, we've seen that happen. Um, is I just can't impress that upon people enough that that we are living two different realities when we talk about uh, black people and and police and white people and police. It's a two different worlds. Yeah. Will you give our white listeners the talk right now? Like, what's what what talk would you give to our white listeners right now? about the talk and about what they need to know um, as they uh, are in relationships, whether it's romantic or friendships or whatever, with with, uh, Black and brown people? I would say we have to really work to understand how differently the world treats Black and brown people than they treat us. And it's not just a snide remark or look here or there. It's a matter of life and death. And so when we are in relationship with people of color, whatever that relationship is, we have to learn how to keep our black and brown friends, children, lovers safe. The police are not safe. Uh, figures of authority are not safe. And we white people don't have a lot of experience uh, with that, with having to um, having to bow to authority. Mm-hmm. For white listeners, it will not sound fair. It will not be fair. The way the police talks to your black or brown companion is not going to sound anything like what you've ever heard towards you before. Right. And so it will be shocking and jarring, and there will be a tendency to push back and yet de-escalate. Getting out alive is the goal. Yes. Again, yes, I agree with you. It really is about when we're talking about the interpersonal relationships, your colleagues, your friends, your your lovers, it's it's getting them to safety. It's getting us to safety and, and making sure that we are taken care of and not... Um, not letting your ego get the best of you in that moment. It's already dehumanizing enough as, as for us as, uh, as the black person in the situation. Um, so just help us get out. If your partner is uh, black or brown, you need to be having these conversations regularly so that when it does happen, you know how to act because you're right. If it just happens and you've never spoken about it, it's never come up. We've never talked about it. You're going to, you're going to do it wrong. (laughs) You're going to fail. You know, my husband has spoken publicly about it. We had a, um, when we got pulled over together, he didn't handle it the best. He did, he did fine in the moment, but then the aftermath, he didn't handle it the best, which he's been open about. And it's like, my husband is pretty, progressive. He's married to me. So it's not like we're not having race conversations. But even that was like, oh, there's a muscle here. There's a privilege here that I have to work on. I being my husband. So I would imagine that any white person with a black person uh, as their partner has to continue to be engaged in these conversations so that they are building that muscle so that when these things go down, that it's not a drill. That's what I keep trying to impress. It is not a drill. 
when you get pulled over, when there's a fight in public, like Walter and Pamela, it's not a drill. Like, like life is at stake right there and then. So have the conversations at home when the stakes are low, when things are neutral, um, when we can be both rational about it. Get curious so that you can start to pick it out quicker, sooner, and be um, be a better when we're out in the in the in the line of fire. Thanks so much to Debbie Irving, our in-house educator and the author of Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race. Now, before we go, I just want to let y'all know that we won't have a new episode for you next week because of the Thanksgiving holiday. I hope you get to spend the holiday with people who love and support you, whether it's your friends, family, or your chosen family, even if you have to break bread over Zoom. Also, I want to encourage you to take the holiday to research Thanksgiving and its history. And if you hear anything racist, homophobic, transphobic, sexist, whatever it is, set at the table, do your work. Shut it down. Stop it before it goes any further. Do the Work is a Three Uncanny Four production. The show is hosted by me, Brandon Kyle Goodman. Our in-house educator is Debbie Irving. Our senior editor is Amy Eason. Our senior producer is TJ Raphael. Our associate producers are Rahima Nasa and Sharina Ong. Catherine Shoemaker is our development producer, and Jenny Kim is our production manager. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. Special thanks to Adam Davidson and Nuna Sharafadine. The show was mixed by Joanna Katcher at Nice Manners. Ava Amabehi is our fact checker, and Elishaba Itoop created the theme. If you like the show, head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. And hey, why not leave a rating and a comment while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show. Or better yet, tell somebody about us, honey. And if you want to have your own story featured on the show, email us at do the work at 3uncanny4.com. That's what the numbers spelled out. So do the work at 3uncanny4.com. Now, I hope y'all are taking care of yourselves as we deal with these heavy conversations. One self-care tip for me is exercise, honey. I know, I know, but don't turn this off. Don't turn this off, honey. I do mean you could take a walk. You could dance a little bit in your bathroom. That's exercise. But finding something that allows your body to move, to shake, to groove a little bit, that is truly one of the best things that I could offer to you. Oh, and one more thing. We're putting some handy resources on our website in case y'all want to do some reading up on the topics we talk about in the show. So you can find that at dotheworkpod.com. For 3 Uncanny 4, I'm Brandon Kyle Goodman. Until next time, you can find me on the gram at Brandon K. Good. Thanks for listening. <laughs>